Welcome to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. The world is changing faster than ever, and the world of education is too. Advances in psychology, biology, and a whole range of other fields have opened up new lines of thought about the purpose of school and how it can best serve a new generation of students. Join me on the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast every week to explore these new ideas. In last week's episode, I spoke with Julie Lejeune. Uh, Julie is the executive director at Toronto's Fort York Food Bank, which is a multi-service agency dedicated to connecting individuals with their broader community. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Dina Kara Schaefer from York University about all things nature and learning strategy. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mike Helsby from Braemar College. And today, I'm just so happy to be joined by Dr. Dina Kara Schaefer. Dr. Schaefer is an educator, a learning coach, a resilience consultant, a wellness writer, a public speaker, and much, much more, as you will soon find out. She has recently taken on the new role of Director of the Office of Student and Academic Services in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University. Some of her responsibilities include helping post-secondary and high school students transform their learning experience and reach their academic goals, supporting parents in peacefully scaffolding their children's learning journey, training educators and counselors in building more holistic repertoires of learning strategies for their students and themselves as practitioners, and offering whole school, research-rich, resilience and well-being, professional development. Holy smokes, you're impressive. Thanks for being with us today. Dr. Dina Kara Schaefer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, I would like yes it's an, a lovely bio to hear back and very kind and a bit like you know for everyone a tiny bit disorienting mm. but the starting place for me is gratitude thank you for caring it's quite a thing to be invited somewhere and go hey can you talk about some stuff that really matters to you mm. um, there's an honoring and a recognition in that that i don't take for granted uh, so thank you, Mike, and also thank you to anyone who might listen to this because minutes are scarce, and we're all spinning a lot of plates all the time. And the idea that some kind human somewhere, a learner or a parent or an educator, might also be interested, even if it's at like one and a half or two times the speed because they're also doing a whole bunch of other things, is a very touching thing. So uh, a total delight to be here and also the practice of hearing your bio back to you those are of course you know some really nice highlights mm -hmm. but to the listeners to any human who encounters this it's a a linear it, that's a linear story made out of a non-linear life and so I think it's really important because if anyone said oh wow that's uh, a lot messier than it is wow well Thank you so much for expressing that first and for starting with gratitude. It's, it's a wonderful reminder. Mm -hmm. um, and I can only echo the sentiments, especially to, to those who take the time to listen. Um, we hope it, that it's always valuable and useful and inspiring. And, and we especially appreciate the care that the parents and the students out there are putting towards uh, thinking divergently, thinking mm -hmm. alternatively about ways to be well in the midst of this 
social, cultural, and, and global context, but also in the, in the context of our always messy, mm-hmm. uh, always becoming lives. Yeah. Um, and today we're going to be talking about quite a lot of that, and it's not going to be yeah. linear, so I think it's, <laughs> it's going to suit you quite nicely. Um, we always like to start, um, I give a sort of potted bio, and then I'd love to just open up the space for you to talk about your background and, and how you ended up where you are today um, in the Office of Student Services at York. Yeah. Okay. So again, another challenge to make like a, a life, like each one of our lives that is both small and really trying to be ambitious and big and bold and all of the like double backs and U-turns and wrong turns. Uh, you know, I became a high school teacher when I was 24, 25. And I think it's like teaching found me and I found teaching um, in an unexpected, um, yeah, utterly unanticipated alchemy that I had actually applied to get into law school. Not because I didn't love teaching, but because I have a shyness and the shyness is bigger than the loudness. And so I thought, I hadn't given actually teaching much of a thought. I wanted to save the world in the ways that I could. And I thought environmental law, now that, we're going to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then I took the LSAT one time, and then I took the LSAT two times, <laughs> and then I took the LSAT three times. Uh, and uh, ain't that just the way of meaning-making and storytelling when we look at it in reverse? Uh, it just wasn't for me. And I can teach anyone how to take the LSAT, but I can't take my own advice. And uh, the thing that actually I got into was teaching. And I actually only got into one teaching program. Um, and this was after doing an undergrad in philosophy where I got to stand defiantly and being a generalist unapologetically. Um, I got into York University's Maybe. Bachelor of Education, which is really a, a trip to be back there in a different way. But okay. it was beautiful because I was um, accepted based on an interview, based on a conversation with two principals. That was the system at the time. So not so much on transcript and not so much on all the extraordinary teaching you might have done in various contexts in your earlier years, but based on a conversation, based on heart, based on hope. And then I was put into the social justice cohort uh, of learning how to be a teacher. And ooh, that was nerve wracking yeah. uh, to be young and also teach young humans and the age difference wasn't so much and uh, I am gentler than I am fierce and uh, we really did it you know we we really learned and muddled through together uh, what it means to share space with remarkable all the way alive sarcastic 16 and 17 year olds um, and to be then participating in their families and family discussions and chosen family discussions and all kinds of school of life not just school of school that happens in adolescence and so from there I did that and I was so hungry to learn more about this thing called teaching and this thing called learning and so I did a master's in education uh, here at OISE in Toronto in sociology uh, and equity studies in education and that was very helpful because it allowed me to plumb the question of uh, what's being taught and what's not being taught and who gets to make those decisions mm-hmm. and who's being harmed in those decisions. Um, so I was allowed to bring the fields of um, my justice orientation and teaching all the way young in transition folks and, and that. And so from there, uh, I moved into post-secondary 
uh, working as a learning specialist in the Disability Services Office at Toronto Metropolitan University, then called Ryerson, but beautifully now TMU, um, where I worked one-on-one and in small groups and workshops and classrooms trying to kind of reveal how learning might happen in clearer and kinder ways for students, particularly students who are having a tough time of things like going through cancer and being uh, in medical treatment that impacted memory or having profound ADHD and also a spinal injury or having cerebral palsy or having a learning disability or gifted NLD. And so lots of unbelievably beautiful and nuanced combinations of learning um, for students on their journeys. And I got to be alongside and co-create uh, some pretty rad strategies about how to remember and how to be present and how to write some stuff down and how to apply some stuff. And from there, well, I got to do this very special thing with those students was that I got to go uh, take them on paddling trips. Uh, And every summer I would take students, uh, initially, the initial iteration of this program called Portage, which I did not create but helped to resurrect. Uh, We took students who were acclimating to university and they had some form of disability that impacted learning. And the thinking, the premise was that uh, you would learn a whole lot, actually, that could transfer then into the first year and beyond. And when I led that, when I did that, and when I saw what I saw and felt what I felt, students who had come with all kinds of, you know, diagnostic sentence about memory or about executive function, and then they were the like most remarkable on-trip uh, doing camp craft and collaborative communication and decision making. I was like, whoa, something's, something's happening here. Mm-hmm. And that something happening uh, turned into a PhD. Um, uh, something in curriculum teaching and learning and how nature and, and learning strategies and holistic education. I mean, you'd think after all that time I'd have like a more concise, it was just a whole bunch of wonderings. And so I did my PhD and I made a really big program with my friend, Dr. Diana Breacher, who's also had the gift of being on this show uh, called Thriving in Action, where we thought, let's reach students sooner. Let's reach students before maybe so much suffering. Uh, And I brought all the learning things that I know and love. uh, And we made this beautiful thing. And then that thing really impacted students and then other educators caught wind and then we taught a whole bunch of people every year and then it spread across Canada and beyond and it's the most unstrategic totally emergent career move it just happened a flourishing project that flourished Um, and then after 11 and a half years at TMU it was time for me to take up a fuller wingspan um, and I moved to York to learn how other folks in other places learn Um, and other vantage points of sort of system pain points and friction points and how I can be of use. And so now I get to be at this place where I started an education like 20 years ago, um, but in a different capacity, trying to be a really good human to the humans I get to lead alongside and the students I get to be in service of. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the journey. Along the way, there's many more things we'll talk about, like what it means to start a business out of all of that and try to write and contribute to scholarship. But, like, that's kind of the gist. Thank you for the gist. Um, 
and as you say, there's there's a a dynamic at play always in a conversation like this, in in our roles as educators, in the process of learning itself, um, where a sort of concision is asked for. Uh, we 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 perhaps find it easier to communicate with others when we put things into compartments and maybe even words themselves could be considered a, a form of categorization and, and kind of delineation or linearity. And I can sense, having read a bit of your work, having talked to you a few times, having just listened to, to, to your most recent response, that this is something you feel very strongly can be pushed against and that the, um, the expansiveness and the wholeness of reality um, needs to be appreciated even in the midst of these efforts to yeah. to be concise with one another to communicate clearly with one another um, and so we're going to try to honor that uh, in the midst of this conversation and if if our wingspan extends yeah. into areas we didn't expect it we'll, we'll flap those wings anyways and invite me back for part two <laughs> sure two part two part podcast yeah yeah we're just going to make a, new, a whole new podcast I want to make sure that, that we come back to the learning strategies that you alluded yes, to and some of the things you did as a learning strategist, yeah. because I know there's parents and teachers and students out there who are dying for that kind of operational advice. But I'm very pleased that we're going to save that for the end and talk a lot more about being in wholeness before okay. we get to um, something that may be used in a sort of box, box checking manner yeah. or in a biohacking manner. All right. There's a lot of we'll buzzwords we could use. Wholeness before the action items. That's correct. Yeah. Um, We'll start with a really, really big uh, idea. You're a, you have been a learning strategist, and you've you've spent a lot of time with hundreds of stu students, um, caring with them, right, mm -hmm. embracing their humanity, yeah. and trying to find uh, routes towards uh, more pleasure and more wellness in the midst of a learning setting and in the midst of a learning project. Learning is a, a bit of a nebulous term to to learn, and and to be honest with you, the more I teach, the more unclear I am about the the <laughs> definition of learning. Um, and yeah. we're gonna we're gonna talk about a project that you've uh, launched quite recently mm -hmm. uh, called Let's Talk uh, in a little bit. But in that that project, you ask, what is the most difficult thing that you've ever learned? And um, you were kind enough to extend that question to me a couple weeks ago, and I've, I've spent a good amount of time thinking about it. And the word learning is associated with ideas like, like mastery or, or application or retention. But I think about some of the difficult things that I've quote unquote learned and realize that though I know them intellectually, mm -hmm. sometimes they inform my behavior to varying degrees. Sometimes they inform my behavior completely. Sometimes they're a little voice whispering, no, don't do it. Remember that we know this other thing. Right? <laughs> and yet I still go down whatever that, that diverging path may be. And so I don't know to what extent I've, quote, learned some of these lessons. And I'm going to just leave it there, a very big open-ended <laughs> open question. As a learning strategist, what yeah. do we mean when we say that someone has learned something? Mm -hmm. I love that, and I love the, um, the gem for me in there is your own wrestling with a question that keeps getting muddier in its answer mm -hmm. back to you. The more you teach and the more you learn. And I also kind of love that you think it would somehow be any different for me. <laughs> because um, in, the, in, the, in each student's life that I get to have the privilege to learn about and bear witness to, and the families and the contexts and communities, because it's not a learner ever on their own. So the fullness of their life in the 
sure, small, but fullness of my life, um, the only thing that I think I understand about learning and teaching now is that it's an encounter. It's the only word that feels true for me, is there's an encounter between a human being and another human being, or a human being and a text, which is another human being mm-hmm. just writing their, their heartfelt thoughts out. You read my mind. Right? Yeah. So there is an encounter, or um, a human being and uh, a bunch of animals, right? Like, Or a human being and a bunch of art. So I... I think that that's about all I really, in fact, that might be my most concise answer for all of today, is that uh, it has something to do with an encounter. And I continue to be like obsessed with what happens when that encounter is really difficult for someone. And that uh, when somehow that learner's freedom is a little bit at stake. Mm. And so for me, serving as a learning strategist, and like I have some feels about that phrase, but serving as effectively a lifelong learning strategist or specialist means I get to actually serve. It's very embodied for me as a stepping stone. Like I kind of imagine taking all of what I know and then almost like balling up, and then the student is like, leapfrogging or jumping in a nonlinear, messy, but direction wherever they want to go. And it's not for me to have any say or sway about where they go. Sometimes it's midwifery and sometimes it's engineering and sometimes it's becoming a soul proper, like whatever. But I'm so keen to participate in that process of that human being go, oof, I really, really want to do that thing. This thing right in front of me, like this test or this class or this project or this task, is it getting in my way? It's agitating me. It's making me doubt myself. It's making me feel like that faraway thing that I want is less possible. I'm like, no, I, that's, I can really participate in that. There's so many things in this world I can't do, Mike. Like, unbelievable number of things that I can't do, but I can help in the space between that learning human and what they're encountering and when it gets tricky to create more ease and spaciousness and restored possibility towards like Ooh, that thing that I still really, really want to do. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. What a beautiful answer. Um, Thanks. I'm, I, I'm, I'm so happy to think that there are students like the ones who come through Braemar, who I, I know many who've ended up at York, many who've ended yeah. up at TMU. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm, yeah, it, it gives me a lot of just really good feelings and hope that they're going to encounter someone like yourself in, in something like the Office of Student Services. And, yeah, that they're going to have that encounter. Um, as you're likely aware, Braemar College is an international high school, mm-hmm. and we welcome... Right now, we have about 350 students um, studying with us from about 25 different countries. That's stunning. It is, and it, it's it's wonderful to be a teacher and, and an educator here because it's it's like traveling. It, mm-hmm. it, you know, every every day you're encountering language and, and music and, and yeah. expressions that, yeah. that you wouldn't normally. But another thing that you quickly realize in the interactions and the encounters with these young people is that there are things happening in their lives. Um, 
one thing in common between them is the the culture shock and the estrangement and the alienation that are only natural to feel when you come by yourself as a young person to a new country and encounter their inbuilt expectations Mm -hmm. and prejudices and stereotypes etc and the first i think the the first thing that that kind of gave me a a sense that you described earlier that like I'd like to pursue this further I might might think about doing a master's of education or at the very least have some conversations like these to start understanding um, to what extent are these students being affected in the classroom moment by moment as they try to receive and retain all this information while they go through this huge disruption in their lives and you mentioned um, and having read some of your work, I know you work at transition points mm-hmm. for a lot of students and the, the portage program at, at TMU and those that it has inspired since work with students who are in the midst of transitioning and maybe one of the biggest transition in our lives from secondary to post-secondary learning. Um, and in, in the work in your, your PhD thesis, which I was reading recently. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. I hope that's okay. <laughs> You'd be um, the fourth person ever. Yes. All right. That makes Actually, I think you moved it from three to four. That's a real gift. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to help. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I loved it. And, and, and it was uh, inspiring and informative. And half of the questions on the sheet in front of me were, were uh, prompted by it. Uh, but there's a, a lovely part where you're interviewing um, a colleague who had worked on the Portage program with you who talks about what actually happens in the learning strategist office or in the, in the offices that you'd shared with new students coming in to deal with the, the varying struggles that, that assail them. And I'm not going to quote it um, perfectly, but his ultimate response was, yes, we use things like Lassie and, and inventories and, and standardized diagnostic terms as, as in some ways as an entry point, and, and there's a, a sort of a shrug like, yes, this, this is a part of what we do. But at the end of his answer, he said, ultimately, what we're moving towards is just being a person in a room with another person who cares, mm-hmm. right? Like, and that's what you're trying to guarantee, that I'm going to be a, a person in this room who cares about you, and you're going to feel that. And that might strike some who are interested in metrics and quantitative improvement and and the kind of uh, thing that makes national education reports look good and makes politicians feel good about their their education sector happy. Um, That that doesn't sound like that. It sounds a lot more like wellness talk, right? It sounds a lot more like therapy, right? And I guess ultimately the connection I'm trying to draw out with this somewhat meandering monologue is... um, (laughs) There seems to be a very, very clear correlation between what we refer to broadly as wellness and the sort of results that we're seeing in the classroom. And that's become so pronounced in, in my mind and I think in the popular mind over the last couple of years. Can you just wade into that space and talk about what comes first, where and which and how wellness um, fits into what we call learning and what we call maybe advancement in education? Yeah, but there's a lot of things in that question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, when I say wade, I'm not talking about a pool. I'm okay. talking about an ocean. Yeah. Uh, we are moving towards biophilia, I promise. But let's no, let's start. No, I don't wellness. need to go anywhere. I okay. So the f- ooh, the first thing I want to respond to in your question was at the start was mm-hmm. around transition. Transition is not actually separate from well-being. So don't worry, I'll get there for sure. But transition is such an interesting word or notion because I think it is helpful in some sense. It makes clear that 
journeying from place to place, moment to moment, the rites of passage that happen around this time, that those have to be remembered and held in awareness when you are an educating type human. That said, it's also really limiting because we think that like, oh, oh, you transition into post-secondary and then you transition out of post-secondary as if there are these really like self-contained and predictable moments. Yeah, like rooms. Yeah, like rooms. You just enter into and then you're there for a while and then you leave. And for sure there are trends, maybe, but there are transitions between courses and there are transitions between life dreams. There are transitions between relationships and partners. There's transition between firmly held beliefs. There are transitions of identities. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's not just uh, students who are in a state of transition because learners are encountering professional type humans who are also in states of transition. So I don't mean to like really have this go to like some uh, disorienting kind of nebulous space, but it's one of those like helpful, not helpful concepts that mm-hmm. if someone is in their third year of a, what winds up being six or seven year post-secondary path, and in that third year, that's when the word or sensation of transition happens because they were in health sciences and then they uncover criminology. That's a transition too. And um, it's not just hard, it's just layered and complicated and interesting and full of both like, ooh, tough, ouchy moments and also um, really alive, hopeful ones. So I have a lot of feels about transition because in the world I work with, it also comes with transition programming and helpful so long as we remember to think of the fullness of the journey as rife with transition moments, big and nuanced, some predictable, some off the charts unpredictable, and all of those are welcome. And we think about those when we do programming and a lot money and make operational decisions towards anything to do with transition. And for me, this feels sister to when we talk about well-being, or maybe I prefer well-becoming, or well-learning, or something like that, (laughs) like feeling okay some of the time, um, is it's a really good thing. It's... um, it feels potent with hope that well-being isn't held so separately from learning or traditional learning spaces anymore. That feels like a hopeful move. And I think it connects with your observations and lived experience around inviting and working alongside international students because for sure international students are coming with so many experiences and questions and heartbreaks and heart hopes about like what is this place that I'm learning in and what are you teaching and how do I get to that place that you want me to get to because that's not really how learning happened for me before and what's prioritized and what you're teaching was never prioritized for me so that's like where learning strategies come in but it's not necessarily wildly different from 
a domestic student, if that's what we want to refer to, a student who is born locally and attends an institution locally, they are coming into a room full of all kinds of contextual knowledges and life experiences and traumas and injuries and setbacks um, that are that don't leave when the lecture starts, that are so alive or feel like they can't be alive mm. and are parceled out somewhere. So I think the conversation of well-being and learning is a, a beautiful opportunity to dismantle this like brick wall between what's allowed and what's not allowed in a classroom. I don't mean like all the way uh, feral, let's just like uh, party all that. That's not what I'm talking about. Of course, there are collective agreed upon, this is how we're going to do it this learning thing so we feel safe and like we're moving towards some kind of direction where we wanted to go. But more is with students, wherever their home originally was, whether it's near or far, so much more is with that student than we ever really, I don't think, as educators or education decision makers, um, hold all the time at the front of our awareness or consciousness. Yeah. Because somebody in the room has just had an abortion, a breakup, yeah. a loss, that's there with them. That's right. Yeah. 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 They. They. Their parents were arguing last night, and they totally. didn't get much sleep. Yeah. They yeah. didn't have a very good breakfast this morning. They, so they, thank you for that. All we need to do, we could just look at one piece: food insecurity, which is rampant. Yeah. And comes with so many ripples. If you're hungry, you can't learn. If you're hungry, you might be trying to make extra money and work more hours. If you are an international student, there are so many rules and regulations about what kind of work, how much work. It just goes on and on. But if then you can't learn and perhaps you're not performing on assessments with the full vitality that you can, um, if, you, if you were well-nourished, um, then a visa is at stake. Like it's so complicated all the time. So for me, is it well-being? It's, it's the social determinants of health are present in every moment. And I keep trying to pitch this idea. And I don't know, it's not gone anywhere yet. Maybe, maybe through the beautiful listeners here. Let's find out. But this health determinants of learning. If we move, we feel better and learn better. Whatever movement is to a human, you yeah. know? Um, I, I'm not, I try as best I can to be wide awake to ableism. So however a human takes up space um, around nourishment and food and is there enough. So that's always present for each one of us. How would that be any different? If I've had an upset with my kids in the morning, not small scale, right? They're okay in this moment. They're healthy and well in this moment. They're well-fed in this moment. But that rattles me and that carries with me into how I might supervise or manage the team I do or who I might teach, how I might teach that day. The kaleidoscope or mosaic or tapish, whatever the word is, of the stuff that makes us up and the stuff that we ourselves encounter is going to show up in the in the room of teaching and learning or the online space of teaching and learning. I just prefer to be awake to it. Yeah. And try to curriculum design for that and try to assess for that. Like have that be a, awake for me as I do those pieces of formal of formal teaching and learning. I'm glad you you finished there with um 
and how to design curriculum for that and mm-hmm. how to design a, a building for that and how to design an administration for that and how to design an education ministry for that. Yeah. I'm completely torn while listening to you between a wonderful, warm, light, breezy feeling of inspiration and, and co- honestly companionship, yeah. like, like hearing a lot of thoughts that waddle around in my brain every day mm-hmm. being echoed and, and being given, I think, better expression than, than most of the time. Um, on the other hand, I'm deeply frustrated and, and really, really... Me too. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't... <laughs> you, you, you have such an aura of pleasantness. It's, it's, um, I don't know how much this can be conveyed just through the sonic information of your, your voice, but physically being present with you here is, is settling. Okay. Um, with that said, as listeners or as regular listeners of the show are probably aware, I'm, I'm pretty angry about the fact that we know quite a lot mm-hmm. at this point about learning and our physiological system, the, the correspondences between them, and the simple facts, which everybody kind of knows intuitively. You don't need to read a lab paper to get this. If you're underslept, you're not learning, right? If you're, if you're highly anxious, if there's a bully sitting two rows you know, across from you and you know that 15 minutes from now a bell's going to ring and you're going to have to go out into that jungle, um, you're not learning, right? You're not retaining a lecture. Um, Moving with this with people from the same age group as you from one class where you learn one compartmentalized subject yes. to another brick <laughs> yes. and mortar classroom where you no- learn another compartmentalized subject. Yeah. Oh, um, I don't know how we get this all this new learning about things like exercise and nutrition and the science of sleep and mindfulness and vagal stimulation and awe and mm-hmm. biophilia. Um, into a place where it actually affects what, what is a, a deeply entrenched system. Like, the buildings aren't going anywhere. The people who are trained to teach in them aren't going to continue to, to be, you know, they're not going back to teacher's college. Yes. Um, our popular culture is going to continue to talk about education the way that it does for, for years and years and years to come. And so um, when I encounter students who have bags under their eyes or I encounter students who are being considered for an ADHD diagnosis because they've got mm-hmm. a whole bunch of stuff going on in their lives that deserves attention and mm-hmm. they, they haven't yet developed the strategies to mm-hmm. work through that, yeah. um, whatever phrase you want to use when dealing with that sort of situation. Um, the, this, doesn't have, this, this question doesn't have a, 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 a good finish to it. I just feel like throwing up my hands, you know, and, and it feels like the job of a responsible educator at this point is one of... Uh, intervention and, and almost rescue, right? Like, like just just getting students through what what seems like a a, pro, a, a an education situation that is at odds with just about everything we know about child development, psychology, and, and biological science. Um, how do you feel about that as someone who's really working at the you know right in the midst of this and at, at the forefront of this this question? Because the students who are coming into your office looking for that kind of help are going to have to go back into that lecture hall where they often don't feel recognized, they don't feel met, they don't encounter, right? Thanks for asking. Sure, sure. That's, that's the <laughs> question at the, at the center of me. You feels there. Yeah. Um, and um, those feels make me so happy that uh, you're an educator. Um, Thanks for saying that. Well, yeah, because uh, you're going to be part of the dismantling and the rebuilding and the regeneration. So, uh, yeah, I have some responses to that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when 
you started by remarking around a way of being. You called it pleasantness. And it's really interesting because I... Um, let's name that we can be not just both but all pleasant and also fiercely angry and frustrated and trying with our whole guts to uh, do something different or counter each day Um, all of those are welcome and coexist and are you know more pronounced or others depending upon uh, the situation but um, all of those are alive in me uh, pleasantness and ferocity both um, and so how does one do it right Ooh, like we're I can feel I can feel a, um, not a narrowing but like we're getting into the specificity of like how to make the existential or the big or the frustrating what do we do now well I Um, stand in awe and appreciation and sometimes exasperation and the reckoning that we're in um, uh, racial and economic and political and uh, the thing that leads to the exasperation is that if we use especially I'm in a white body so if someone is listening I'm in a white able body um, with uh, in, in a middle class context If I am ever to use the word decolonize with any kind of integrity, it means the thing, one of the things I can do is to abide by putting relational first. I can put in mutuality and what it means to be in a space with another human being at the center. Um, And also nature and the natural world. But in this context of what you're talking about, how do we do teaching and learning now when we're angry? And when we long for something different and it doesn't seem to happen. And the metrics that are used keep storytelling about how fraught things are and that they're getting worse. Well, um, yes, it doesn't uh, result in immediate change, but it is the most transformative thing is how do we do relationship with each other? Am I generous with my time? Am I all the way present? Um, And do I give that to my students? And do I invite that? Am I hurrying them through something? Or like, no, you can't ask that question because we have to get on to the what? Next learning outcome? Like, am I with you in this moment of your encounter and my encounter? Uh, I think that that is not uh, fluffy. I think that that's real. What a counter move to the hyper-capitalist, go as fast as you can, always trying to sell or buy, always super polished, all the sort of social... Um, imaging of what a life should look like is it it disappears if I am just a human being with you just a human being and we're muddling through this moment even if one of us is a teacher and one of us is a learner so I think in a way not just speaking truth to power but enacting truth to power by prioritizing the relational it does mean something Mm. Um, the next thing, you know, when you talk about movement, you're a mover. Uh, move, moving does something for you. You live it. Um, and then, sure, there's enough and um, from exercise science and, and the world of all kinds of, you know, cog sci and learning um, research that I think there needs to be a shift uh, away uh, from what counts as subtractive or additive to mm. our day. And so if my day is ruled 
ruled by a to-do list. And I don't live in some dream world, okay? Like my day is ruled just like everybody else's of a to-do list. Then I know what it is to triage out like, oh, can't walk. Oh, can't call a friend. I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. That's like, that takes everything in each one of us with whatever tiny micro-intervention we can within the context that we live to indeed push back and go, wait, is movement actually taking away from my list of to-dos and accomplishments today? Because it doesn't take long in a human's life of integrating movement to feel, oh, actually, that added something. I don't have fewer minutes. I have more energy. I am more in touch with the fullness of my being. And look what I just did. I moved away from being a doer my whole life, every day, doing the things and solving the problems into a human being that is being. This idea that exercise is the first thing that comes to mind, and that's the modality that I'm, I'm perhaps most familiar sure. with, and I've, I've been so lucky and, and, and blessed to have been put into that world so early. Um, but I think it applies to just about anything that makes us feel good. We can say, oh, I don't have time for my, my breathing exercises this morning. I don't have time for, for mindfulness. I don't have time for that dance class. I don't have time for, for my daily run. As you just said, and this is all I'm doing, highlighting it, um, you get into these practices and you quickly realize, I don't have time not to. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that for me, exercise, people think of exercise as a depleting um, force that it takes yeah. your your energy yeah. and your atp and your oxygen yeah. and your motivation and all that it folks it, it couldn't be uh more opposite right I, I was lucky to have basketball practice every day between five and seven o'clock for all five years of my my university um life and i don't think i could have done the type of work i did in the evening without that practice i didn't realize it at that time mm-hmm. but it was giving me the chemicals, the, the endorphins, the dopamine, the, the, the serotonin that comes from belonging and feeling like a part of a team moving towards mm-hmm. a, a common purpose. All of that was being given to me yeah. by this thing that I thought uh, was, was taking from me at the time. And I think that our popular culture tells us, right, is going to take from you. Mm-hmm. And there's so much mechanistic language around things like exercise and even if you look at a gym and you look at gym culture it's a very mechanistic place where you you know you add numbers to your Mm -hmm. your lifts and you're working Mm -hmm. with these these kind of cyberpunk machines Mm -hmm. with very you know clear levers and and everything like that where people have been harmed and excluded yes and left out of that Yeah. yeah and and where there's this extraordinary emphasis on um mutual perception the gaze right mm-hmm. the, the rooms covered in mirrors and i don't know mm-hmm. why we don't ask more questions about that but let's la- ask a lot of questions let's ask a lot of questions <laughs> about that but just to return to it and, and to yeah. let you uh, continue with your your answer um folks if if you're worried about some of these practices taking from you um i would encourage you just to give them a, a shot for two weeks journal about them if you get a chance and ask yourself how do I feel before and how do I feel after? We do this with our students all the time in, in our um, in our phys ed program, in our gardening sessions, in our cooking club. And the, it's important to notice that your body will report, I feel better, I feel ready for the next thing, I feel home, I feel mm-hmm. settled. Mm-hmm. Ooh, there's so much I want to respond to, the threads to pick up. Um, 
first and maybe it's where we started and I wonder uh, if you and I and what I suspect will be a lifetime of conversations sure so. yeah is uh, something around um, beginning by disrupting anything that sounds or feels like separateness um, those things that you just described like gym class or exercise they don't have to necessarily be separate mm. activities i think that's one of the conundrums about mindfulness i think anytime uh, we're told we ought to do something like we ought to do one more thing we can't possibly none of us do one more thing in our day but what if actually we take a fuller view um, of what learning is or what movement is or what counts as exercise because it for some your experience of practice on a team is going to be like i want to do that but for other students it's like that's kind of a nightmare for me mm -hmm. because uh, it's just that's i don't that's not my preference or i've never felt welcome in that space um or that's not actually what feels good in my body and so separateness or beginning conversations of holism you know it's like uh, right in the classroom not just thinking that this thing we're doing is happening only with our minds our bodies are all the way there our bodies it's an embodied experience learning mm -hmm. and so i don't mean that we don't set aside time we can set aside time but it can also be more integrative and i think one of the ways that can help students is to also include conversations about habits and how we begin to pick up new things like movement practices in our day that are sort of self-originated, not, oh, I should go to the gym because I need to look like that, or I should join this thing because I should do that, or I uh, should go to that class because everyone's going to that kind of modality of class. Like beginning to understand enough around feedback from the body of what feels good, what doesn't feel good, and then going with that. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious what would happen if we started all kinds of conversations, if we stopped in our tracks like, whoa, just to your point in the beginning, like we're learning chemistry as different from English, as separate from biology, as separate from phys ed. It's not actually how we experience it outside of high school or post-secondary. Like if that's not really, that's not really what happens, mm -hmm. you know? And exercise doesn't have to either. I can be in my workplace. I remember a very good friend of mine who works in athletics and recreation and post-secondary, and he had a new baby. And he was like, I know, I can do inchworms around my office in between meetings. And it wasn't a thing that he had to put on a list. He just integrated a new understanding of what it means to be a working human in the fullness of his body and experience. I like to move. I kind of feel crappy when I sit all day. I notice that I have absolute energy slumps. And I know, because I'm practicing every which way I can feedback from the body that I'm not denying or shutting myself off from is I, I'm impelled to move. I'm compelled. I want to do it. Yeah. Great. I'm going to go with that. Well, the best thing I got right now is I'm going to do inchworms and I'm not going to feel badly for that. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious what happens if we 
begin to demonstrate to students the many ways that movement or taking up space can happen. It can be in formal spaces and formal classes or not at all. And to experiment with when does it happen? Does it happen right before you're studying? Does it happen in gentle, restorative ways before bed or when you wake up? Does it happen vigorously in that slump in the afternoon? What a fun experiment, yeah. and we never treat it like that. And I do wonder if the language of science contributes some harm to that, like to people just like, oh my God, like I, what do I care? Some people will be like leaning in, I, I love it, tell me more about anatomy. And other people will be like, I just couldn't give a toss. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think I used to like dance when I was a kid, or I think I used to like martial arts when I was a kid. And I don't actually need to know why. The why is enough coming from my body. And what happens after? Holy, look at me reading for more than five minutes in a row, and I'm like still focused, and I understood what was happening in that text. That's quite a moment. Yeah. But we never really make that connection for students. We might medicalize it, we might pathologize it, but we don't necessarily give, or we might say, you should do this. We, I think, could offer students a variety of different ways into, for example, movement and space taking, as connected with to your what you're doing with your students. What does that feel like? What's it feel like? Do you feel any more clear-headed? What does it feel like to be clear-headed? What does it feel like to read or do, I don't know, chip away your essay from a clear-headed place? Mm -hmm. Whoa, whoa. And I think that along with if we integrated teaching about how habits come to be, it's not simple, but it's interesting, might help students because part of what's so exhausting is the micro decisions all day long. We always are faced with like, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I respond to this? How do I do? It's like, it's exhausting. The cognitive fatigue, right? We know that. Mm -hmm. How do we teach students that it's not always like that? If we say to ourselves at 11 o'clock every day, I'm going to do some inchworms around my room or better yet in the afternoon, I don't know, physics class, whatever happens for students, whatever that third period is or fifth period is in the day. No matter what's there, that teacher's on board with like, yeah, I really notice my students are spaced out. So regardless of the discipline, regardless of the subject, we gonna move. Mm -hmm. And or the invitation is to move however you feel comfortable. But I do I don't think it's impossible. And I do think it is counter to the rest of the world and the pace we're living at. I do think I do think educators can model it and I do think curriculum can be designed from an integrative holistic um, vantage point or starting place boy I sure hope so um, right back at you you started by saying where you know there's so many different threads to pull and you're giving me quite a few of them um, I find myself thinking of there, there's a show on HBO that's just come out in its first season my, my partner and I are quite enjoying called shrinking Oh, the, should I watch it? Is it good? I think so. Is this a plug I, for shrinking? Sure, sure. <laughs> it doesn't need it. It's got the, the big names and everything else. But the theme song to it is by uh, Ben Gibbard from uh, Death Cab for Cutie and Postal right. Service and right. one of my personal favorites. Um, and the final line in it is he just says twice, I want to hear myself think again. Right? And he, he sings it beautifully and I'm not going to, you know, send our listeners scurrying away by yeah, imitating. Exactly. But... It's you said we need to you know remind ourselves or, or remind our students rather that 
it's not always like this. You're, you're not always going to have these minute-by-minute demands and expectations on you. And in fact, the quicker you realize that and the, and the more you start stepping back, trying to listen to the body, trying to build a relationship with your physical self so that you can actually hear it. Um, and maybe that's, that's journaling or whatever reflective strategies that, that we might be able to, to encourage in them. Um, it does not come natural in, in our society. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost as though, in some cases, quite explicitly, the forces that act on mm-hmm. us are uh, interested most in stealing the, mm-hmm. those little moments we have. Any toxic sort of, productivity. Yeah, toxic productivity is right. Um, and you watch documentaries like the, the Social Dilemma, or you listen to Jerome Lanier or Tristan Harris talk about what tech and especially social media mm-hmm. have done to our ability to pay attention, right? Um, mm-hmm. Johan Hari speaks uh, speaks quite mm-hmm. beautifully about lost connections yeah. and stolen attention, right? Those are the titles of two of his most recent books. And it, it does feel as though the world is sort of conspiring against some of the, the, the beauty that we're talking about today, that um, we need to teach students not just self-care, but defensiveness. Like you need, mm-hmm. you really need to... Um, become aware of of the agenda that, that's out there oh, acting on you. That's tough. Yeah, because we don't really want to teach them to no. be clenched and braced like all no. us grownups. Yeah, ex- exactly right. <laughs> and we don't want them to take an oppositional view of yeah, the world. Yeah. They're a part of it, right? You're yeah, not yeah. you're not in traffic. You are yeah. traffic. Yes, right? that's right. That's right. Um, and it's true. We know around movement that. It's, it declines actually around the transitional age of heading into post-secondary. That if it's not already firmly practiced and entrenched in a young person's or in a, a student uh, human's life, uh, it actually goes down. And we already had, I mean, you were worried about some of the other metrics and the, the metrics about movement are equally as depressing as math scores and literacy and cre- critical thinking and um, I actually don't want to participate in any of, <laughs> I don't want to even reiterate any of that stuff because I um, I think it's scary um, if you're a young person and you hear that. And I'm actually in the work of trying to contribute to healing and not participating in larger narratives that yeah. terrify or exclude or pigeonhole um, or generalize. Um, but yeah, let's try to move more in ways that make us feel good and not ashamed and not bad and not like another should. Um, and maybe try to reclaim some kind of joy. Uh, yeah. It does seem like the obvious, the most obvious answer to some of these these um, issues is um, nature. We talk about where do you get movement, where do you get refined attention, where do you get a, a space free from attention stealers, mm-hmm. right? the um, predatory capitalist forces. Um, <laughs> You know, where do you build relationship? Where can you collaborate on yeah. on um, simple projects that are connected with your most foundational self, right? Mm-hmm. Keeping yourself warm, getting yourself fed, mm-hmm. right? Finding a place to sleep for the night. God, that sounds so good. Let's go Doesn't camping. It? Let's get out of here. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's an hour north. Come on, let's go. Team. I know. Let's. Um, it's sometimes I, I, the throwing up of hands that I t- described earlier is a, is like a. This is so obvious, right? Like we, we, we already have all of these answers. I should just live the way my Nana lived, mm-hmm. right? My Nana had all the answers. She ate simply. She played tennis every day. She valued walks and she had a deep 50 year plus relationship with my grandpa, right? Mm-hmm. We know what the blue zone studies show. Yeah. We know what, what makes us live the longest and the happiest, right? Yeah. We know what keeps cancer away, et cetera, et cetera. Get out in the forest. Yeah. Um, 
I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited about it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not upset about it. Uh, you enthusiastically. This one was like soapboxed and also like I'm all in. Yes, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> um, your your PhD thesis is titled A Biophilic Approach to Postsecondary Learning Strategies. And you talk beautifully in, in, in a narrative voice about your experience with the Portage program. I just to add a little bit of uh, context uh, slash irony. I was born um, in the most urban uh, context. Uh, here in Toronto, uh, my parents did not camp, like <laughs> exclamation mark. Um, but like with a, a fist pounding yes, the table, we do yes, not we camp. Just, like, that was not, right. um, if anyone wants to picture my, my parents um, who are no longer alive, and that not aliveness has also informed uh, everything that came after, that uh, they can imagine my dad, if anyone watched Mad Men, as Don Draper, totes. Wow. Wow. And uh, and my mom was Joan, was Secretary Joan. That was like, so you can see Good what I mean. But yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Very. Um, and in their way of being, yes, yes, yeah. they they understood to martinis, like yes, right? Pretty cool. I well, sure, yes, in yeah. many ways, in many ways. But you can see why emphatically not camping. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I actually have this scene from Mad Men in my head right now where Don takes his family out for <laughs> yes. a picnic. And at the end of it, just baseball tosses his beer can That's into the right. park, flaps That's the right. picnic, all the garbage goes everywhere. Well, time to get out of here. <laughs> we did a good job, a half hour picnic yeah. on the side of the road. Um, that might have even been too nature-y um, for, my, for my family. All right, I'm, I got uh, the picture. Yes, yeah, so, um, and years and years later, I ran into a woman at a, an outdoor education conference where I was speaking at, actually. And she was uh, fumbling while she was cross-country skiing. And I loved the honesty of her fumbling because I had just been, I think, cross-country skiing once or twice again, like not a thing that uh, I did when I was a kid. Mm. Um, And she said, late onset. I'm a late onset cross-country skier. So in that same way, I was a kind of late onset nature kit. Um, I I can't say one way or the other if I loved it or didn't love it when I was growing up. Like I'm sure I had some, I think my maternal uh, stepfather um, or so my my grandfather, my step grandfather, um, he grew vegetables, and I thought it was pretty rad uh, that he grew like lettuce and tomatoes and eggplants. Like that, that was a nature moment. But it was very meaning. You know, I did a couple of high school trips with friends and uh, was bug bitten enough to learn when to camp in uh, <laughs> central Ontario uh, say, when yeah. it's safe to go. Don't. Don't yeah. go to Algonquin in May. That's it. That's a real thing. May, June, I would argue maybe even July. I'm a little bit precious about that. Yeah. Um, but but what really happened um, that changed for me professionally was that love that had somehow appeared for me in, in the high school years, not from any club or I, that wasn't the kind of high school I went to, Um but goofing around with friends and going with people who kind of showed me what to do, the basics of camp craft, um, I just kept doing it. I kept doing it, and I made lots of mistakes, like how do you do a bear hang? And, and uh, 
when you do long distance swimming in a lake, like how far is too far, far and scares all the people you go camping with and, you know, how to really, as a, a person in a, a, a body that I, I identify as a woman, how to like really insert myself around fire building because mm. um, uh, it's very gendered. Uh, so all of that stuff was so fun. And when I got to TMU, it was so much a part of my summers and my um, and like the love of long walks and I, that palpable sense of difference and change after being outdoors, uh, immersed in the closest things to wilderness as I could get coming from an urban place. I was so lucky to encounter an incredible teaching human and mentor. His name's John Hanna. He's actually just up the road. He's the director of academic support at U of T. He probably won't expect that I'm mentioning him today, actually, but he had started this beautiful program called Portage based on his own lifelong love and deep skill um, at uh, backcountry paddling. And so there we were, we met each other. And you know, when you meet a mentor, when you meet a twin flame who thinks like you do, you know about that, right? Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah. And so then you are like, let's do all the things. Let's do all the things that we love. Come away with so, me. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and so we did. So yeah. we did. Uh, and we got to uh, arrange incredible outdoor programming for young, no, let's take the word young out, for students of all ages, actually, for learners of all ages. Um, ultimately, a five-day trips at no cost to the student, really, except if they wanted to, do like if they had the means to donate a little, but it was not a requirement, no gear necessary. I collaborated with some friends at Outward Bound. Uh, I was able to shore up funding, and I took students who had zero prior experience, and I would sit in the bow and be like, okay, we need to go there, <laughs> make it so. And we would go around in circles and like, oh, goodness, help us on a, on a windy day. Uh, it would take a while, but mm -hmm. something incredible uh, happened every time for every student. And there were mature students, um, uh, racialized students, students who had left and come back, students who were uh, heading back from probation, students who were athletes, students who were caregiving, students who were parents, like really students across the uh, experience, life experience. And there we would go and we would set out in our canoes and have a whole bunch of nervousness, including in my body before we mm -hmm. left, like, oh, geez, is this one going to be as good as the last one? Is the magic gone? Is it, is it really going to be as good? And then you leave your phone in your car and that's a hard moment for, for many of us. Um, and then you set off, um, and something alchemical happens, right? Something quite extraordinary. You make a family, you make a, like a whole bunch of ways of being, you make peak memories, and that is also part of the school experience. And students would say, literally, as they were carrying barrel of food on their back, that's heavy work, or canoe over their head, heavy work. And they would say, if I can make it through this portage, I can make it through any exam. And you're like, yes, that's it, you got it. You got it, you got everything. I mean, they also got lifelong friendship, they got 
boatloads of confidence. Mm -hmm. They got um, practice of seeing themselves no matter what diagnostic sentence they came in with in the fullness like of their radiance and skill and capacity and capability. So those trips of cliff jumping and um, of fireside chats, Ooh, when we got to do solo experiences and have a night unprotected, all of the students and the and the staff scattered in the woods, and we slept beside you know piles of moose poop and on uh, like evergreen branches in the open air. What? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we all made something of it different, and yet that different meaning making had a lot of overlaps. And that's what I tried to do with my PhD was like, something's really happening here. And now feels in a way passe, like, yeah, yeah, nature's good for you, right? Like, shocker. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to when I talk about my Nana and just like saying like, hey, this is pretty obvious She was right all along. Dang. Dang. Um, it's the way you described there, the, the portages especially. This yeah. is this is a big it's part arduous. of my life as well, yeah. and it has been for some time. And I'm I'm lucky to have a, a really nice group of guys who I've grown up mm-hmm. with who have share the passion. And uh, perhaps in, in a sort of typically masculine way, there's an aspect of um, pushing the challenge on each other and like extending the trip. Um, seeing what we what sort of equipment we can do without seeing you know can, <laughs> can one of us do this portage you know is is it Christian's turn or Dave's turn with oh just word. the canoe and let's just see how he does. I've um, been on one of those trips. It was not my favorite no, trip. No, fair enough. Um, I, I also uh, go quite often. We try to get it four or five times with my partner yes. every uh, season. And the, the, do you make it an dynamic. eco challenge? Um, she makes it a, a bit of an eco challenge. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I'm learning an awful lot. It's nice to pair uh, my more advanced skill with campcraft yeah. with her more advanced knowledge of um, plant biology. And so oh. she stops us along the way, and I say, we we really can't stop. We've got a good flow going here. And she yeah. say, but you're never going to see this again. Yeah. And, I, and I'll have to kind of slow my roll and, and oh, be like, oh, blessing. cool. But as you say, it's a very obvious thing and maybe a universal sensation and a good example of what we were talking about earlier with how some of the things that popular culture tells us steal from us or take our time rather are givers of, of yeah. energy and time and connection and relation. Um, best example I can think of is the end of a portage where, mm-hmm. where you get into a, a physical position and a geographical position that on paper looks deeply uncomfortable, right? You are drenched in sweat you're probably bit by several mosquitoes <laughs> yes. you are fit you have you don't have any calories left in your body None. right um your legs ache your back it's aches the it's the best it's the very best <laughs> feeling that there is right and that yeah. food you could bring the most we bring like um dried couscous which yes. is very very light and blows up into a nice yes. hearty food yes right uh if you serve me dried couscous yes. on a wednesday after yes. after a work day um, I'm not going to be super enthused. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but boy, that couscous is the right. best meal I ever had on that evening. And that little bit of warmth from the fire. And that's even if it. I'm sleeping on cedar branches in my, in my tent, that's a, that's a Michelin comfy, meal. That is, right? that's what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> and even when stuff goes really wrong, those are the best it parts, right? When your canoe tents. Yeah. That's right. Something always goes wrong. And so we're getting something deeply wrong. And when we talk about these things, uh, or we talk about our hesitations and the things that the barriers to entry for this, because it, it is the most enlivening 
feeling that I've ever had. And that's just a personal anecdote, mm -hmm. but I think it, it, it borders on the universal. Um, I want to just uh, steal a quote from, from your thesis, um, talking about the journey uh, in, into a, a backcountry camping situation. All of the ingredients were there. The departure from the known, the voyage into the unknown, and the return to civilization. The obstacles of high winds, rough waters, brutal portages, dissension, and long, dreary, rainy days. The unexpected pleasures of new vistas, of wildlife seen, of achievements and minor triumphs, and the joy of one's companions. The sense of participation in a primitive reality or the reenactment of an archetypal event, the sloughing off of the inessential and the experience of mm -hmm. renewal. Thank you for putting that quote. But not my words, but no. yes, well chosen. I can take credit for, <laughs> for choosing. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, That's beautiful. We hear a lot of talk now about, especially from people like um, Dacker Keltner, mm -hmm. who's... Um, Mm -hmm. Amongst other things, the host of the Science of Happiness Get podcast. Get him on this show, man. I'm, I'm going to send an email That's after it. this. I'm Do a little it. intimidated. Do it. Um, I listened to a recent interview uh, with, on On Being with uh, Krista Tippett featuring him. Yeah, where'd you find out about On Being? Mm -hmm. okay. okay. My favorite. So you get an interview I can only with, give so much credit. <laughs> you get an interview with Keltner. I get on with Krista Tippett. Come on. Yeah. That is the dream. All right, we're we're we're, we're on, on our way. The, the the same page that we're on is is getting pretty full. Um, I'm fascinated by the idea that this very uncomfortable, um, difficult, and again in words unappealing experience, mm -hmm. um, especially for people who've never ever done it, don't have the knowledge, don't have the the um, memories or the the visuals of their own, um, that this archetypal event, this peak experience, this awe inducing encounter um, can can bring out skill sets and self-awarenesses and and even um, abilities that are in contradiction mm -hmm. to previously established diagnoses or assumptions about the self right we talk about students with ADHD going out into nature and enacting deep focus mm -hmm. in the building of a campsite right we talk about introverted or socially anxious people finding real deep connection mm -hmm. with strangers mm -hmm. in the course of an afternoon. Mm -hmm. That's not supposed to be possible, according to these diagnostic um, mm -hmm. pronouncements. Mm -hmm. So just in whatever way you choose, using whatever entry point you choose, um, can you just talk to us about your, your sense of what is going on in the body and in the community of people who go out into this archetypal event, into these peak mm -hmm. experiences? Each one of your questions is like um, either a poem to unravel a little or like a box and then, but then there's a box in the box in the box in the box. So I might not be getting any of it quite right, but it's full hearted, you know, every mm -hmm. response. And so you asked about, you know, from whatever entry point. So maybe I'll do like five different entry points uh, as is my messy way. I think it's why I landed on the word biophilia. Because part of me wants to say to you, like, I don't know why. And maybe it doesn't matter why. Because if it feels good, <laughs> that'd be enough. Mm -hmm. But biophilia for an urban kit, and again, like, 
with all of the like my social location so i'm not speaking for any other human but what helped me f understand what i was feeling is this notion of biophilia so originally from eric from as a way of understanding a a love of life like an orientation towards life and then eo wilson picking it up as um, an inbuilt inclination to affiliate with the natural living world that helped me understand something that was happening for me when I would go on paddling trips or uh, long hikes or anywhere where it was more nature than it was built uh, you know whether it was a view from up high or whether it was by waterside and you know stars tell me one human stars doesn't do it for like that's right so biophilia gave me language to something that felt bigger than language so uh, in a way if we think about learning alongside or allowing for the possibility of biophilia oh like why wouldn't we want to do or be allowed to do or be invited to do or full permission to do that inbuilt kind of movement towards, right? Like sunflowers, heliotropic, moving not by their will, but just in them mm. towards sun, right? Mm. Why wouldn't we have the same thing in us about the natural world and all those facets of it that leave us fascinated or in awe or feeling a sense of bigger company or bigger perspective or bigger purpose, well, why wouldn't we weave that in to whatever curriculum and ways that feel relevant and doable? That's one of the waypoints. Biophilia is for sure one of the waypoints. It's like, well, if it's in us, why wouldn't, why wouldn't we go with what's in us? Um, but part of me also feels the more that I unlearn in this world, I want to be careful about conversations about nature because number one, they're not just one thing. Um, number two, um, or maybe what I mean by nature not being one thing is that if you speak to folks who live on land or where like land-based living has been part of their life and their generational understanding, it's not only pleasure. In fact, sometimes it has very little to do with pleasure. It's hard work. It's sometimes very cold or very hot or very buggy. And so I don't want to deny or leave out those conversations because that's often a very racialized space too mm. of like who gets to go on trips and experience nature as pleasure and delight and escape and retreat and uh, who actually, um, yes, is in deep or deeper relationship with nature and sometimes that nature is really hard or really harmful or connected with labor um, and sustenance so I, I think it's important to complicate relationships about nature yeah. the thing that also leaves me a little bit with like my head cocked is that um, like this is so profoundly not like upsettingly not new like, not only did your Nana know it, but, like, people have known this for millennia. Yeah. And it's only very recently that some folks who've really dominated uh, the world have really messed that up. And 
Uh, what helps me now is not just the notion of biophilia, but the notion of consilience. So where there are multiple grooves of really good ideas that are happening. So it helps us not appropriate like, oh, um, some indigenous folks like really understand about nature. I'm going to like pluck that idea. Well, number one, there's no such thing as any pan-indigenous idea. And number two, there's no plucking. Like we're not, we're not borrowing some ideas or taking out of context. Consilience helps me turn to and deep dive and ask questions and unlearn in many grooves and many parallel um, long-standing traditions, epistemologies, ways of knowing. So I find that helpful because biophilia is just one for me. It's just one entry point, but there are going to be many. Just to linger on this a little bit, can you provide, um, I don't know if you have a ready-made example of the type of consilience that, that you're talking about, what it would look like to, to learn in multiple grooves or from multiple grooves sure. at the same time. I don't know that yeah. that language is isn't even, it, even, even isn't for me. Isn't it good? Isn't consilience a good word? It is. Oh it gosh, certainly it's is. It's so I'm, good. Um, so it's not mine at all, but it, it helps me understand why some modes of thinking or some traditions or some badass wisdoms seem to occur alongside each other. I don't necessarily mean in time. So if we think about the mindfulness movement, right? All right, so like, all right, cool. There's like a lot of apps you can do. There's a lot of breathing techniques. I have totally taught them. I will probably continue to teach some. I practice some. I don't practice some and then feel bad about not practicing some of them. Okay, so mindfulness. There's a whole like psychedelics movement that's happening, right? Around mm -hmm. like when you listen to those alongside each other around consciousness, and those are just two, we could go into many, many spiritual and like consciousness related. There's something that feels sister or cousin. And for the, and I could be way wrong. Maybe it's just like my ears in this moment understanding consilience. But when things feel like they're cousin to each other, that's what that is. Mm. So there are many uh, rituals in nature. There are many ways of describing. So we could talk about biophilia. We could talk about awe. We could talk about it from lots of different points of view. But I don't need to prioritize one. I'm just sharing the one that kind of captured my heart. But underneath that is the thing that happens perhaps to all of us, which is like, cool, I feel something too. And you feel something too. And those two places might be different. You're doing it from like an eco challenge all the way physical exertion. Something's happening. And then some, whoa, a total naturalist point of view. Whoa, every flower's a miracle. Yeah. And it's not that one is better or whatever, but like look at those parallel kind of captivations or fascinations. So that's what I understand of consilience, which could be like a real <clears throat> misunderstanding. But whatever, I like this. I like my working definition. Yeah, it no, works. And, and it helps you. me. It helps me understand. Well, you've helped me too. Um, I, I hadn't heard that uh, term before, and that, that's a it's a wonderful example. I think of people like um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. who is a a poet, a conservationist, a an academic, and a philosopher, and she's able Thank to. Thank heavens, you yeah, know. Oh, I know. <laughs> like, yeah, I couldn't be more thankful that people like her have ended up in this world mm -hmm. and, and have 
Being, and yeah. that we can be so many things. Hey, young people who are listening, be all the things you want to be. Yeah. Be 15 things when you're introduced on a podcast in yeah. your lifetime. Cool. Be 15 things. I ask my, I have two, I have three daughters actually. I have a, um, two that are from my body and one I get to borrow from another. So I have a stepdaughter and, uh, and I ask my two young ones cause they're, at the start of brainstorming, I'm like, tell me 10 things you want to be. Mm. And not just for today, right? And it's like, rad. I want to be an artist and a veterinarian and a marine biologist and a dancer and a scientist. And, 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 and I'm like, yes, all of those. Do it differently than I was reared into. Be all of those things. So indeed, a poet and an activist and a naturalist. Yeah, yeah. all of it. Um, I wanted to mention Robert Wright as well, who's really, really helped me as someone coming from an academic background and who speaks in, in a, a lot of yeah. academies, um, but as, in service of helping people like myself to understand the Buddhist tradition and, mm. and the correspondences between what mm-hmm. we are learning about the brain and, and our psychology. Consilience. And, yes. Look, yeah. And, and yeah. How, how the overlap with the yeah. teachings of the Buddha and the, the Bodhisattvas who have come since. Yeah. Um, it's exciting. It's, yeah. it's exciting to yeah. to realize that these things you th- you might have been tempted to think of as new um, have a, they're a palimpsest of mm-hmm. so much that's come before and so much that we can return to. Um, we are cl- coming to the end of this particular. That's such a episode. bummer. I know. I know. I, I, I would <laughs> love to keep going. Because um, we're almost lighting the camera on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. And I, I don't know what time it is because we, we don't have. Is it hailing outside? We'll return to the outside world soon enough, um, and hopefully get, get you back here for many more conversations like these. But um, a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are. Uh, like ourselves, interested in the ways that the mind works, the way the, the human develops, the, the universality of some of those dynamics, and especially how we can find ourselves at our best in our learning situations, wherever they may be, young or old. Um, you have spent more time than the vast majority of people helping with that project. Mm-hmm. After so much talk of <laughs> breaking with categories and compartments and linearity and embracing the mess and um, prioritizing relation over yes. uh, uh, productivity, let's say, are there first steps, tactics, strategies, operations, <laughs> suggestions that you might offer um, to someone who finds themselves in one of the the millions of transitions that we find ourselves in between the life of a teenager and the life of an adult, the life of a secondary student and the life of a post-secondary student um, to maximize their wellness and give them the best chance to be able to to listen to themselves, to, to have a relationship with their body and with their surrounding community. And in the midst of that, meet the, the goals, be they academic, professional or otherwise, that they've set for themselves. Yes. And we're going to need another couple hours. Um, so I think we've probably driven all the way home um, around uh, what movement and what movement and nature can do. So we'll just leave those as they're already on the table. Um, you know, I teach students of all ages and all disciplines, um, you know, things like time management and task initiation and how to take notes and how to listen and how to write when you have writer's block and how to edit and how to study and how to take tests and how to work with other people. Like, that's my whole life, is teaching those things. 
Um, and so I like desperately want to talk about all those things because I think learning strategies is the most underrated uh, field or thing out yeah, there. I agree. Um, and so as a, um, I want to do a few plugs, okay, but I'll do them in a moment. But I will just say that if a, if a parent right now is cooking and they're like, I cannot listen anymore or I, I have to go pick up a kid, um, you can follow me on Instagram at, at Awakened Learning. And I, that's all I do is share learning strategies. So like there's more time. Um, but what I would say is that of all the things to do with, um, you know, the use of assignment calculators, not grade calculators, assignment calculators around learning project management and chunking, so time management, or how to learn how to prioritize by sequencing the work between, you know, medium hard, then the most difficult, then the most accessible, or um, concentration restoring strategies, or studying first, no matter what else is due. I mean, that's all of what I can go into. But what I, when you're talking about learning strategies in the context of transition, I want students to know that belonging is the number one thing that they can attend to and belonging takes no particular shape or form belongingness in the form of connection so we'll look at that we're right back to relationship but in the form of connection usually between a student and some kind safe professional human so maybe it's the front desk administrator maybe maybe it's the facilitator in a mentoring program Maybe it's a particular teacher, instructor, or TA, whatever they are, wherever they are in the learning um, journey, is that that counts for so much. It counts as a kind referral to a service like counseling or accessibility. It counts, um, it might lead to early alert, the student's in trouble, how can I help? It might lead to paid work or volunteer or internship. It might lead to mentorship. Mm -hmm. So we never know where our relationships take us. And when students have that oppressive to-do list and we already have taken off exercise sadly and we've already taken off nature and hopefully we've articulated why to leave them on that they give so much more than they take so does belonging so does anything to do with tending to our sense of isolation or loneliness we know what those do for health for quality of life and for academic performance and so if we message or model to our students, there's no time for play. There's no time for fun. There's no time for friends. Like, oh, we've got it all backwards. Like, of course there is. Of course there is. Does that mean you do like a pub night right before a midterm? No, you have to think about the order of things. But it's so crucial that relationship coexists. It needs to be at the center, right? So um, in a way... There's no better studying strategy. In a way, there's no better, um, you know, math formula learning or uh, memorization strategy actually than belonging because through that belonging, we feel a sense of connection and wholeness and purpose and that humanness, which enables us, that motivation, it enables us to keep going in that learning journey where we kind of are aiming towards that big dreamy goal that we talked about, it. whatever it is, whatever it looks like. Belonging at the at the heart and at the forefront of um, anything we do mm-hmm. when we and maybe just leave it there. Anything that we do. And anything we do. Um, the the name Susan Weiss and her work with um, design for belonging mm-hmm. uh, comes to mind. Is there mm-hmm. anyone that you might recommend in in that world or that <gasps> landscape? 
I, you know, I don't know around, I don't know yet. Uh, there's lots of interesting research that comes from in the kind of academic realm around studies with nursing students, studies around persistence, how much does belonging help a student continue if continuing is the right thing. Um, I would say what has touched my heart and spirit in thinking about how schooling unfolds is not a person, but is sort of a modality, the kind of marriage of, it's not design thinking, but it's the notion of human-centered or better yet life-centered design so in a way what would happen if we had life-centered curriculum design life-centered school life-centered assessments mm -hmm. and that might not be very meaningful that might feel really lofty but if we think about going with the desire to move going with that biophilic impulse it's the same thing um what would it, what would it be like again pushing back against that separateness in the fullness that holistic experience that is each one of us understanding what students are bringing in with us that's my curiosity is life-centered what might be possible I, I can feel the the pull of this type of thinking and, and the, the inspiration towards diving right in and, and just continuing this journey all the way through. Um, I feel very lucky, and I think we all are for the, for the listeners at home. Um, you're going to be able to go to the podcast uh, summary just below this link and see Awakened Learning among the other resources that we're going to provide. Um, as you just mentioned, Awakened Learning contains the the, co the collection of your, your learning strategist experience. And, yeah. and as you said, you do this. I do this. All, all day, this every is day, what right? I this, this is, is what this I is live me. and breathe and and coaching and and talks and whatever whatever is useful to people. So anyone at home more than welcome to to check out that site and see the kind of strategies that uh, Dr. Dina Kara Schaefer is talking about. Um, you mentioned an Instagram page, I believe. Where yeah. what other projects are you engaged in Buzz right now, and and hey, where else can thanks. we find you? Thank you. So um, maybe you could be my fourteenth and fifteenth follower. Um, I'm at Awakened Learning on Instagram. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. If it feels like professionally it's useful to connect as a community of educators, you can just find me in my name, Dina Kara Schaefer. But two projects that I'm hard at work on is I'm writing a book. Uh, so holy smokes, if anyone's an agent out there, <laughs> um, that's, a, that's an interesting slog. Uh, um, not the book writing, but finding a way to give it an audience. So I'm trying to write a book about all of these holistic, multimodal, inclusive, um, equity and justice centering learning strategies to help all ages of students. So that's what I'm up to. And then, as you mentioned today, um, I love that you called it Let's Talk Along the Bell Lines. It's called, no, don't worry, Learn it's that. so great, it's so beautiful. Yeah, it's called Learn That. Um, uh, maybe it'll be as big one day and as far-reaching as Let's Talk. Um, so I launched Learn That today, which actually is a very humble thing. Uh, so if I can just take 20 seconds um, to plug something that actually has nothing to sell, there's nothing to buy, uh, it's an earnest offering. So I am interviewing 100 people or so this year, and I am asking the question, what is the hardest thing you've ever had to learn and how, emphasis on the how, did you learn that? 
And I'm asking it as a pushback to the glossy, glorified lives on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok um, that depict somehow like what life should look like, but actually um, it's, it's not what most of us look like. I'm doing it as a pushback also around the myth of expertise. Like I want each one of your students to know that actually they're the very best experts on how they learn mm. and that they will amass very creative, uh, totally idiosyncratic repertoires of strategies and micro interventions that work for them as they encounter along the way. Um, so I want to recenter expertise within the human. Um, and I'm, I'm not in it. I'm just interviewing folks and, uh, and asking that question in the hopes of creating an offering on social media for good. And so from all walks of life, all ages, all stages, um, learn that is out into the world. Let's see what happens. Let's see. There's nothing to buy. There's no page to go to. There's just that. There's just that. So you can, you can watch that on my Instagram you got to be careful with these uh, these revolutionary models, these these refreshing no purchase, no fu- no paywall models. There's no because, funnel. There's yeah. no lead magnet. <laughs> no, you're just going to get this this <laughs> population moving towards you. We'll see. May I mean, if that were the case, then wouldn't that speak to uh, what folks are hungry for? Yeah. It's like, couldn't I just couldn't I just encounter right another human doing something that means so much and. There is no masterclass, you know, and there's no Instagram with the fingers that are pointing here, there and everywhere with the cat. There's just, it's just an offering of like what was hard. And that person had this creative, unbelievable way of learning something. So people are talking about how they've learned that life is working in their favor, not against them. Um, how they decision started decision-making when they became a single parent, how they learned humility amongst the corporate climb, how they learned to boundary set and say no um, through family challenges, how they learned how to meditate by doing it once a month in their own way, in their own term. And um, those kinds of very beautiful, unscripted, there's no set backdrop. Like, it's just humans sharing their really badass wisdom, right? How cool is that? Hey, do you want to do it? Do you want to I share do. your? Do you want to share your learn that? Let's do it right now. Okay, let's do it right now. Um, can, can I wrap the the show? No, do no? it in the show. Can't you do it in the show as part of the show, Mike? <gasps> let's do it. That's, that's pressure. Why? No, it's so great. Look, here we go. Okay, you ready? Do you have it? Do you need a minute to think? Thinking's probably not great on a podcast. No, I've been, th- <laughs> I've been thinking for a while. Okay, here we go. So I'm gonna. So all you're gonna do is you're gonna say, "I'm Mike," and however you want to introduce yourself. And the hardest thing I ever had to learn was uh, maybe a moment of why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how did you learn that thing? And it's like 30 seconds, 60 seconds, or nine, like whatever. It's short. All right. You ready? Okay. All right. Three, two, one. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm an educator. And the hardest thing that I ever had to learn, and I'm honestly still learning, is that argumentation does not work, is not persuasive. That the way to find correspondence, the way to move closer to truth wherever it's to be found is through relationship, is through humility, empathy, commonality, and sharing. Um, I learned this by growing up in a pretty strict religious family in a pretty strict religious environment, um, which convinced me that there was one 
epistemology, one way, one truth, and that it was my duty to argue and fight for it um, as strongly and as often as possible. Um, that type of religiosity and epistemology transitioned uh, into one in the political world as I grew older, and it took 25 years of arguing and being very, very angry to realize that I wasn't changing anyone's mind and I wasn't moving any closer to the truth. And that's been a difficult realization, one filled with guilt and struggle, but it has also been incredibly liberating, and I hope to continue learning this lesson for the rest of my life. Well, that's a one-take thing of beauty. Hey, thanks. Nice. Thank you for asking that's me to do this at the end of a podcast because, uh, you know, wow. it flowed a little easier. I th Ingrid, yeah, we've been Ingrid's, talking for a while. Been... Ingrid has filmed me enough times having to do one of those maybe wow. four or five times. But that, that, that went okay. Ingrid, are you going to do one? No, she's not doing one. That's okay. Let's, uh, let's wrap this one up, but uh, in, in the spirit of everything we've talked about, no beginnings, no endings, mm -hmm. no compartments. The conversation continues. Yeah. I am enlivened and emboldened, and I am doubtful and confused, <laughs> and a few other things in between. But thank you for a wonderful conversation, and thanks for taking the time out of your day to, to be here with us. Holy smokes. Thank you in every possible way. It is an absolute honor. Thank you. We hope for many conversations like this in the future. Thanks for being with us. This has been Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. We'll see you next time. And join me again next week where I'll be speaking with Dora Anya Query and Zoe Wong, who have been our nurses in residence from Toronto Metropolitan University here at Braemar College these past months.